The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're so excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. But that's not all. Have you ever wanted to see yourself as a character in a story? Now teachers and students can create their custom game avatars and see them come to life on an augmented reality poster. To learn more about Classcraft's story mode and the new AR experience, simply visit classcraft.com. Part of what we do, part of what it means to raise kids is you have to figure out what you want to take from the past and how you want to help it move into the future. Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is a special edition of On Education. Uh, we are live at the Impact Education Conference, and we're joined by Jordan Shapiro. Hi. Hi. I'm going to introduce Jordan. Jordan is a, just in case people don't know who Jordan is, um, Jordan is the senior fellow at the CUNY Center. He's a member of the faculty of Temple University. Uh, one of the leading academics in the whole world on, that's it. We're building him up. Yeah, modern, <laughs> modern learning, uh, digital, the digital age, uh, author of The New Childhood. This is The New Childhood, folks. It just arrived. It was one of the books Woo! that you could choose as your, um, as your option here at the conference. It's available now, and Jordan uh, will be available to sign them for you if you decided to pick this book up. If you have kids, um, this is a must-read book uh, for, for, I think, raising your kids in this crazy new world that we live in. If you teach kids, you've got to read this book, too. Yes, and I'll, I mean, we have educators here, so I think it would anyone qualify kids, everybody. Anyone yes. teach kids in the room? <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> right. No, exactly. So we're going to, we're going to ask uh, Jordan some questions. We have um, some, some great topics to talk about. We're going to open the floor a little bit later uh, to you folks. If you have questions you'd like to ask Jordan, Mary at the front has a mic, uh, and she will... Don't be shy uh, when we open it up. Raise your hand. Mary will come find you. Um, so start thinking about things you might want to ask them, especially if we bring something up that kind of gets you going. So let's get started. Um, Glenn and I both have uh, boys, two boys each. Um, and, and I have an 11-year-old son, and I have a, a three-year-old son. And, um, you know, we live I'm in... sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we live in this uh, this world, and, and I can't help but put it this way. But I mean, are are our kids screwed? Like, is this? Are we putting them into this crazy world, uh, and it's 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 all going to hell, kind of? Well, I guess it, that depends on <laughs> how you mean that question. Are you asking about uh, climate change? Right. <laughs> are you asking about uh, you know the the the, the uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, the total reordering of geopolitical reality in the world. Um, um, I mean, I, don't, I assume you're asking about technology. I am asking about, about things. technology. Um, but I, I think it's important to bring up all of those things also, because I think we often do get stuck in this question of whether or not the, the smartphones or the digital technology is really 
the issue. Um, and I think there are lots of things we need to worry about with, with, with our kids, but, it, but the question is not just about technology. Technology is just the tool. I mean, often we have people uh, talk about things like the fourth industrial revolution, and the question becomes, how do we prepare kids? By the way, I hate that term, the fourth industrial revolution, and it gets to the point, which is, um, you know, it's sort of this imagining that we're just going to do what we already know a fourth time. Right, all right. Like, no, we're doing yeah. something totally different, and that's why when we bring up the the the, the first things I, I said, the climate change, etc., uh, I think we have to ask all of those things. Which how are, how are kids going to live in a totally different world, and how are they going to have autonomy and agency and be fulfilled and productive in a totally different world, using the tools of that totally different world, which are totally different tools, as well as totally different ways of thinking, as well as a totally different reality. Um, are they screwed? Well, they're screwed if we don't rise to the the challenge as adults of preparing them and, and, and I'm not quite sure you know I, everyone's trying I, I don't want to like point yeah. fingers and go we're not doing it but we're not doing it um, but we're trying hard and hopefully we're going to keep trying and do it and do it better and better and better I, 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 I'm pretty optimistic about this next generation um, um, without necessarily you know I'm not so optimistic about the state of the world but I'm pretty optimistic about how our kids are going to uh, navigate a, a, a difficult world, yeah. Your world's gonna be a lot harder than ours. Their sort of existential uh, 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 struggles, like, are no, like we didn't have right. to deal with any. It's, right? it's com incredibly complicated, the world that we're raising our kids into, yeah. for sure. So uh, inside of the book, or within the book, there's just so many compelling things that you say inside of it, and one of it has to do with play. Um, and in the book you say, play digital or otherwise, is not frivolous or superficial. It's the work of childhood. Through play, kids have their self or learn self-regulation and executive functioning. Can you expand upon that? Because we, a lot of times we as adults, um, we forget about play, that it's so important for our kids to be doing that. Um, and sometimes we get paranoid depending upon what kind of play they're doing. So tell us more about why. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, is just to correct myself, because I, I did write that sentence. But I mean, first I'd say, yeah, play is, I, I mean, I think play, can, I, w I would like to edit it to play can be frivolous, uh, because so much of what we do as, as children is frivolous, uh, and that's okay. I think more what I meant is that although play is frivolous, it has really, really, really important things happening that goes with it. And when the re you know, everyone always sort of goes, oh, but they're just wasting all their time do doing this. Well, they're not, my point is they're not wasting their time. It right. is still yeah. frivolous. No, it's totally. Still me, you know, but they're not wasting their time. Um, and the way to think about it, why play matters so much, and by the way, like, if you look at the, uh, the, 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 entire last hundred years of child development research or education research, like if there's one thing that everybody, if there's anything that's settled science, which is of course, you know, a, an oxymoron, right? Settled science, like, but if it's good science, it's not settled, right? Um, but if, if there's one thing, it's that play is good, right? Nobody's running around saying play is bad, right? Uh, play, play is good. And the reason it's good, the way I always like to think about it and why they learn things like self-regulation and executive function is if you've ever dealt with kids, and I think everyone here has, um, then, you know, kids just want to have fun, right? Like, that's all, that's sure. the only thing that motivates them. They're like, fun, I want more fun, I want more fun, I want more. And when they sit and play a game with their friends, uh, if they get into an argument, 
it stops the fun. So the next time mm. they go, how do I try not to do it? But in the meantime, what they're learning is how do I work with other people? How do I interact with other people? How do I have to, you know, did I, was it because I couldn't control my emotions that I ended the fun, right? They're not having that level of intellectual uh, uh, articulation going on in that conversation, but they're yeah. absolutely still running that sort of statistical analysis of, mm. of how can I change my behavior in order to maintain more play, maintain more fun. Do we, do we make a distinction between, in your mind anyways, between structured play and unstructured play um, in the sense that um, is all play good? Um, and, and is, in my mind anyways, and my wife's a kindergarten teacher, so there's a lot of unstructured play in my wife's classroom. And it, it might be just that you're learning different things. It, the, the value is less in my mind. Is, it, would you say that that's accurate or do you have a, a different take on this idea of structured play versus unstructured play? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think that, that, I mean, first of all, uh, I, let, me, let me respond to is all play good? I mean, I'm sure there's such a thing as bad play. Yeah, absolutely, there's play yeah. that's not, not good for you. But I, I think I would argue even against the argument that there's structured versus unstructured play. Uh, Interesting. Like, like there's adult structured play, but part of what kids are doing when they're playing is structuring things, right? That's part of why it works yeah. so well. You put three kids together and they make up a stupid game with their like rocket ships and they're making up rules and they're abiding by those rules and they are self-structuring. And that's an important thing to learn how to do. Totally. And then sometimes us adults recognize that it's better for us to put certain structures in place so they learn to to, to, so they learn to play within those boundaries. I think in, no matter what, there's always boundaries within play. Uh, that's what you're doing. You're either self-selecting those boundaries or interacting with uh, externally select, uh, uh, constructed boundaries. Nice. Mike and I are heavily into video games. Have you ever listened to the podcast? The first <laughs> two, three, four, sometimes more minutes uh, involve us having a discussion about how big of nerds we are and how much video games we actually play. <laughs> Uh, and there's a statement, I, I highlighted it and marked it inside of my copy of the book, and it, it goes like this. Great video games share a lot in common with great teachers. Both are rigorous, responsible, reflective, and real. And you even said you called them the four R's. Could you talk to us more about that? Because as, as our educators are listening to this, they're like, a video game compared to me. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I'm like, I'm like hesitant to answer that question because I'm giving a, a talk tomorrow and I'm going yeah. to cover Plug. that. <laughs> I'm going to cover that tomorrow. That's, uh, um, so everyone come to my session tomorrow. Come to Jordan's no, session I tomorrow. Deal with that. No, I mean, and I do talk about that tomorrow and in general in the book. It's the, the you know, part of why kids like video games so much is because kids love learning and video games are great teachers. Um, and I'll yes. do that in a lot of detail tomorrow. I don't know if I want to spend so much time on it right now. Is that okay? That's absolutely okay. Um, I, I'm a history major. I, I kind of um, mentioned that a lot on the podcast as well because it's, it seems coincidental that I ended up teaching computer science. Um, but one of the things I love referencing on the podcast is the Prussian school system and how our entire school system, the way that we've modeled school is in fact rooted in the Prussian school system of the 1700s. And this is the way we've always done school since then, the factory model, 
or, or for lack of, I mean, I guess that's the actual academic description. And in the book, um, you also reference the monastery model of the school system in that, um, you know, monasteries had developed this system of ringing bells at certain times in order to, um, you know, as, as a way to time out their lives, their day, um, in this sort of structure. Um, and it leads me to think about, like, we're still, we're still operating, generally speaking, in a school system that follows the agrarian calendar um, so that kids can go out into the fields and harvest the crops like anyone's still doing that. I mean, I did actually get in trouble on the podcast once for saying that and someone telling me that in Iowa and in some of these other states, I'm Canadian. And in Minnesota. Uh, and in Minnesota, that there are still people that have their kids out in the fields, you know, in the summer doing that work. And I, I'm not discounting that work. But, I mean, we obviously need to start thinking about how school can change in the same mode as, like, this is a pretty, in my mind, this is a fairly futuristic book in the sense that it's talking about, it's ambitious, and, and it's pushing people to really think further than you know, the way that they're thinking now. And so I want to think about how school can or should change in the future to get out of these outdated modes of the way we've always done school. Yeah. Loaded question. I know, That's a slightly big how question. How would you change school, Jordan Shapiro? <laughs> Go. Well, well, first I want to back up and deal with the, the you know, you, you talked about the Prussian model or the factory model, and I, uh, there's parts in the book where I call it the monastery model. Um, you know, uh, there, and there's some truth to that argument, and there's also some not truth to that argument. I mean, schools changed immensely over, sure. t- over time, uh, and it changes constantly, and it continues to change. It's very different now than it was when I went to school. There's some things that are the same, and there's many things that are different. Nevertheless, it's useful from a rhetorical standpoint for us to sometimes pick an arbitrary date and talk about what hasn't changed from that date, right? Is it the factory model? Again, I use the monastery model in that chapter because I'm trying to talk about how our conception of time influences it, and, yeah. and that starts there. So I, I think both, both, are, both are true and also, and also not true. So the question I think we always have to ask as whether we're educators or parents or both is um, part of what we do, part of what it means to raise kids is you have to figure out what you want to take from the past and how you want to help it move into the future, right? Um, and so on some level, we do want to keep the stability of the past. Not, we don't want to keep things the same, obviously. The world changes and you have to make those changes and you have to adapt to things. Um, 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 but then, but it is always about what are you going to keep, right? So, you know, I, uh, yes, you and I can both understand how crazy it is that we're still uh, using the agrarian calendar and that we, that we haven't changed school start times, but also to change school start times tomorrow would be a total disruption of all of our lives. Like, think Giant. about how much we'd have to change how we organize everything, yeah. right? So, so you're not going to do that, and, and is it, does it need to change necessarily? I mean, maybe there, there are some things that do and some things that don't. So, so do to me, I think, you know, um, I guess all I'd say is as much as I, I'll write a futuristic book about how much things do need to change, I also want to point out that, you know, it's kind of good that schools move slow because there's a lot of places in the world that change really fast, 
um, and, and, in da and dangerously fast. Uh, you know, I used to be in lots of meetings with, with administrators who would be like, well, why can't, you know, there's so much bureaucracy in the way of us updating the technology. And I used to sit there and go, I am so glad that bureaucracy is there because Google would own every kid in America already if it weren't for the slow moving bureaucracy. Apple would own every kid's mind in America if it weren't for the slow moving bureaucracy. So in some ways, while I definitely think we need to be really, really thoughtful about how we change what we teach, how we teach, again, you know, how we think about what the learning objectives are, how we change the habits of mind for the future, we also need to be cautious about, you know, disrupting everything the way Silicon Valley wants to, right? It, it hasn't been, uh, you know, there's lots of good they've brought us and there's lots of bad they've brought us because um, in some ways they've moved fast and broken too many things. Like politics. Yeah. Perfect example, yeah. I was just thinking, Jordan, as people came to this session and they read the description even of, of this session, one of the things that they probably was, uh, came right to their minds is this topic of screen time, yeah. the, the dreaded word. And whether or not, as many publications have put out there, whether or not all screen time is actually equal. And how concerned should we be as parents, as you state, uh, you have some great uh, stories inside the book about those specific things. And as educators, uh, many of us have moved to one-to-one -one districts where we have our students working on devices all day long. Well, not all day long, but at least that's the perception. Um, and how much screen time is good? Um, is there good screen time and bad screen time and so on? So what's your opinion on that? Because there's a lot of things being written about it. Too much. Yes, and so exactly, but it's 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 definitely something that our parents come to us and they're talking to us about it and and they take their device home and it's like a controversial thing at times. Um, what? How should we be feeling about all of this? Give us a bigger picture. Well, well you know, I, I've always sort of pushed against the uh, the concept of screen time itself, right? This idea that we, we're going to talk about it in terms of duration. Um, um, and one of the reasons that that I feel that way is. Um, I mean, first of all, we have, what, since the beginning of television, so almost 100 years now, we have doctors trying, like, biasedly trying to prove that screen time is bad, right? Biasedly mm -hmm. trying to prove that exposure to a screen is going to cause harm. like Aggressively. Aggressively trying, yeah. and they failed for 100 years, right? They cannot prove that there is toxicity from exposure to screens, right? There is no evidence that there is toxic, that screens are toxic. They've never been able to make that connection in a way that's stuck right certainly you'll yeah. find a study i guarantee you if you like tomorrow morning that'll argue that they finally found their way that it's stuck but none of those stick um they, they but they pop up they still do it everybody wants to do it so one to ask this question about screen time sort of has this assumption that there's a certain amount of exposure at which point you're going to suddenly get brain damage right that's <laughs> not true um so the one is the question i think you hear a lot of people talk about which is uh which is what matters much more is what's happening on those screens, right? Yeah. And, and, and I don't even think you need much explanation for that. You know, when, it, when, I, when I think about my own children, right, well, I brag to people about how one of them spends hours doing like uh, uh, 3D modeling and 3D printing, right? I'll brag about that. Like my son spends eight hours a day modeling with complex software in order to, right? That's something to brag about. But when it's video games, suddenly we're like, oh, I'm oh, not going to no. brag about that. I'm going to pretend, I'm going to lie about how much time they spend. So, so there's definitely a quality question of what's being done on those, those screens. And, and what I would say to parents, what I always say to parents and to teachers is, 
uh, is the real question is what, well, first to parents, let's start with parents. For parents, I think the question is what, whether what's happening on those screens are aligned with your values, okay? Again, there's lots of frivolous play. There's lots of play that's stupid. My kids do a ton of time watching the dumbest videos I've ever seen. <laughs> I watch them to make sure they're not out of alignment with my values, right? right. Um, yeah. Just like my kids play a lot of stupid games out, you know, if I take them to a swimming pool, they play a lot of stupid games in the swimming pool and they'll do it for hours and I'm like, I don't want to hear about your dumb game in the swimming, swimming pool, right? I have no interest, in, in, I mean, but I don't tell them to stop, right? But if, if their dumb game in the swimming pool was racist, I'd be like, stop that right now. Exactly. Right? Not, not okay. So the question is purely whether or not it's aligned with values. For teachers, I think the question is whether that screen time is aligned to pedagogical goals or, or pedagogical, I guess, I don't, I, let me, I'm going to back up because I don't want that to sound like it needs to be specifically aligned with a specific learning outcome because it might be more that it's part of the process. But screen time for screen time's sake in the classroom is also ridiculous. I hear this all the time, you know, teachers, how can I add more tech, right? People hire me to consult and they'll go, oh, we need to do something with AI. And I'm like, well, what's the goal, right? <laughs> right I don't know, right. why is AI the right, what the, the right tool if you don't even know what you're trying to do yet. So, so that would be my question for teachers. The question of, if, you know, is it bad to do it? Is it not bad to do it? Those are all wrong, I would say. There's no, again, no, e even there's a place in the book people always bring up the, the, the handwriting versus uh, typing argument. I go through that in the book in, in, in detail. There's no good, it, it, it's not good science. It's, it's, it's bad science that makes that, that argument that, you know, the, 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 it's not even a good, good studies that makes that argument that the handwriting is better. That doesn't mean I'm saying handwriting is bad or like we should forget it. That's a pretty hot take too. Right? <laughs> People love arguing about cursive on the internet, <laughs> on Twitter. Yes, they, they yeah, I mean, um, well, again, there, there's no, and I guess I should explain why I'm saying it makes, you know, the, the argument is often like more, more retention comes from, from, uh, from handwriting. But again, we, we, don't, we don't know which comes first. We train people to write for years and years and years, and then suddenly they're like 13 and using a laptop versus handwriting, and we're wondering why there's more retention with the, of course, there's going to be, that's what they have more practice uh, with. That's what they've seen modeled Interesting. more. Um, it's not that it's essentially one or, the, one or the other, which, again, that doesn't mean I'm saying, hey, get rid of handwriting. I I, I, I'm, I have a fountain pen in my in my pocket, right? You like, do, you do. You were using it. Yeah, I'm, I'm all I'm all for, I'm all for the, these things. I'm just I, I, my only my only point is that the science the science just isn't there to prove to prove one or the other. Um, so teachers, back to the point was what teachers really need to just go is is how can this help? And to get to the more screen time thing, again, if we're trying to raise kids, and we are, I shouldn't say if, we are all trying to raise kids into adults who have, who are fulfilled, who can be productive, who have agency, who have freedom, who have autonomy, who have an intellect in a world that is saturated with screens, which means we need to teach them how to, ha how to have autonomy with screens. We have to teach okay. them how to accentuate their intellectual ideas and articulate them using screens because that's what we all do as adults and they're going to do it 10 times as much. To me, that's the question, not do you know math? Do you know math and can you articulate math on a screen in, and communicate it in a digital and an analog world, both at once? It is not as simple as do you know numbers. It's as simple as what can you do with those numbers once you know them. That's a great response. We're going to open up the floor to questions. Mary is here with a microphone. We're hoping that... Um, questions or criticisms or insults or compliments? <laughs> or, or, or Ar no, argu arguments about cursive? Yeah. yeah. 
It's always fun, too. So raise your hand if you have a, a question for Jordan. Mary will come and find you, seek you out. Hello, my name is Dimitri Russell. I'm with Asu Area Schools. Hi, good to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, my question is developmentally, do you have a recommendation in terms of, as a child, when you mentioned your, your wife's in kindergarten, how much exposure to screens should that child have? And then as they grow older, so for example, my son is six. He loves you know, YouTube, he loves my iPad, my phone, anything. And so I monitor that based on a value conversation you shared. But I always wonder, to what extent should he be on YouTube or on a screen or something that he, he believes is high interest for an hour or two hours? Do you have a perspective on that? And then how should that grow over time? I mean, is there a perspective where you should say, you know, if he's doing his homework, you know, or something like that on a screen, and maybe 30 minutes or so he can do something recreation, do you, do you have a perspective on what that should look like later on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I would say to you is, uh, um, you asked, you, you phrased it as developmentally, so I'll start there, which is, which is one, it's going to be totally different from, from each, for each kid, right? There's no right, right amount, again, because there's no, like, there's no, as I said a minute ago, there's no such thing as toxic, toxicity from it, right? So, um, so it really depends on the kid, and you have to make that choice, and I know that I have two kids, they're now much older, they're 12 and 14, I don't have the same questions you're asking, but I did once, um, and, uh, and they were, I had very different answers for the two kids. One, one of them was someone who would very easily get completely absorbed and not do anything else all day and I had to put much stricter limits on that one the other one you know would sometimes and still to this day will sometimes watch or play a game on a screen for an hour or so and then wants to immediately go draw a picture and take a walk and ride his bike and so I never really you know very different way of thinking about what how, how to manage it the bottom line is it's not about what again what's the right amount of screen time or screen use the question is there's a million things that we know developmentally are required in order to grow into uh, in, into a healthy individual. Is the screen time displacing that? If the screen time's displacing those important outdoor play, it if, it's, if it's displacing uh, two people talking to each other, you know, the parent-child back-and-forth conversation, which we know is the most important thing, if it's displacing that, yeah, that's a big problem. If it's not displacing that, it's not a problem. My, my kids, for example, we played video games together when they were six and seven and eight, and actually the easiest way to get them to interact and talk with me was to play a lot, <laughs> and that made for a lot of icons contact and a lot of back and forth and I and, and that's great but again if you have a kid in the corner staring at an iPad for for four hours a day uh, who's six or under uh, they're probably not getting enough of all the other things that, that are absolutely essential but again we don't want to sit there and go, the screen is the enemy. The enemy, then, is that we haven't figured out how to make the kids do all these other things. Even when I was a kid, my, my, my parents had to come and get me and be like, you, can't, you need to stop playing the piano. You never go outside. Oh, you want to sit and play the piano? And yes. they had to stop me and go, you need to do your homework. You need to read books. You need to go to friends' houses. You need to, like, that was just as dangerous. Yeah, I, the piano is great. We don't think of it as a bad thing. It has certain benefits that it gives beyond just the ability to play music, but it's not the only thing that makes for a socially well-adjusted person. Um, um, so so th that's, that's the bigger question. Anything that's disrupting the full uh, gamut of, uh, 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 of social-emotional learning for kids is a problem. It is not the screens that are a, a, a major, a, a singular problem. I'm curious, Glenn, do you, do you have any, so you have two boys, 
do you have any rules about screens in your house? Uh, and and I, I think I have some, some ones for myself too, but I'm curious if you have specific rules or little quirks that are individual maybe to you or? We do, we have rules and they can play video games on the weekend only um, and two hours on Saturday and two hours on Sunday. It also is, I mean to frame it, and I've said this on the podcast before, interesting because I have a uh, 67-year-old father-in-law who is a gamer, if you can believe that. A hardcore gamer, <laughs> yes. too. We've talked about yes. this. He loves and, it. And um, he actually plays with my kids, and he, those are his only two grandkids on Xbox Live, and they actually play these games together. And so that bond that's happening, it's just so strange to think of this uh, completely different generation's uh, of people and 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 you know his grandkids are there and he's connecting with them actually in ways that I have not even connected with them because of this kind of virtual re- worlds that they actually play in, so that's unique in itself those yeah, things. Yeah. But for sure we would have limits. Um, we don't because there's a limited amount of time that we actually get to spend together after school. Um, we we say we're not going to do that. We also ourselves though put our stuff away too so that we can show and, and model that we can put our stuff aside too and we call each other out, my wife and I call each other out when we're not doing that too. The three things I've been thinking about lately related to this screen time question, the first one is, um, you know, so we know that if you're looking at a screen, for example, just before you go to bed, that's a bad, that's a bad thing. It, it disrupts your sleep. It doesn't, you don't sleep very well. Um, and so, for example, my son, Isaac, who's 11, he has to turn off all of his device. Like, he can be on the computer, but at he goes to bed at 8.30. At 8 o'clock, everything's off. You can, you can do other things, but you can't go on... You can't be on your computer. And I feel like that, that is a common-sense rule kind of rooted in science, in evidence, and, and makes sense for us that, that it's time to start slowing down your mind, slowing down the day and ending the day. Um, without, you know, watching YouTube and whatever else. Um, the other thing I'm trying really hard at, um, it was kind of a 2019 goal, and I, I, I'm not saying I nailed it, um, but this idea of modeling, I think, is is huge. Modeling my, especially because I'm very active on Twitter, modeling my phone use when I'm in front of my kids when they're watching, when we're sitting together, um, not being on my phone when I'm sitting beside Jacob or Isaac, Having my phone away and giving them my full attention um, is something I'm, I, I want to still really get better at because I think that modeling that behavior um, teaches my kids to be fully attentive in the moment that they're in. And I think that that's important. I think that that's something that, that matters. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. But I want to add another kind of modeling, which, which it sounds like your son is getting from grandpa, right? Um, which is there's also modeling online behavior. Sure, right, totally. Right, right, like, so I've been trying to push uh, parents for years to do more texting and interacting on social media with their kids. Yeah. Where else are they going to learn to not behave on Twitter the way the grown-ups behave on Twitter if we don't have grown-ups saying, that's bad behavior, that's not good. Get on there. and Interesting, and, amazing. Like, like, how do we teach them the good digital etiquette. So you're saying jump onto Snapchat, and and then Snapchat. if they're living in that in that I mean, I don't know thing, jump on lots of things. But <laughs> model the digital behaviors as much as you model the, the non-digital yeah. behaviors. Yep. All we right. have a question. So I guess I'm a high school teacher, and 
my school district is 40% free and reduced lunch, so I'm just, you know, kind of the population we're at. So when you talk about modeling behavior and aligning with values and everything, I mean, what do we do in schools with kids who aren't taught that at home? With kids who aren't taught to, when somebody's talking to you and when we're sitting at the dinner table together, you aren't looking at your device, right? Because parents are working or they're taking care of little siblings and stuff. Like, that's like a bad, I mean, I get it with the screen time. I get, like, teaching kids. I have two children, too, like, teaching them how to balance it in their lives and use it for the good thing but we still have to do this kind of stuff but in schools we're battling with kids who like cannot hear their phone vibrate and not look at it and they can't they can't shut off so I don't know what does your book say about question for Jordan <laughs> yeah I, I mean I, I, I completely uh, sympathize with that with that that fact as a teacher my, myself um, but I also think it's not really specific to screens I think that's always sort of been a, a problem teachers have uh, uh, is this question of uh, of what how, how do we overcome what's not modeled well at home I mean there's lots of homes where where parent where kids are being taught uh, not to value academia at all not to value books at all not right. to value intellectuals at all and that's something teachers that's been going on for a really long time and that's something teachers have to have to contend with I mean you I, I, I sympathize with that. I'm not trying to get, get rid of it, but I'm also saying, you know, that's not screens alone. There's so many things uh, that, that we have to deal with like that as, 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 as teachers, um, and, we, and we find strategies. And I, and I guess what I hope is that by framing it that way and saying, hey, we do this with so many other things, it allows you to think of it that way rather than, hey, we're battling this one thing that's so hard to overcome. We're battling lots of things as teachers um, all the time, and they, and they involve different strategies for different students and different strategies for different years and different strategies for different uh, contexts. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I, you know, you, you hear about, I've always sort of been, had a problem with this. I don't want to say I have a problem with it completely, but I, I've been resistant to the idea of schools that go, hey, no devices at all, because of what you're saying. Because I think, where else are they going to learn not to pick up their device in the middle of a meeting if the teachers haven't told them a million times, don't pick up your device in the middle of Like, how did I learn how to behave in a meeting? Because I got yelled at in a classroom for 14 years, right? Uh, I mean, and I'm not even exaggerating. I was yelled at for disrupting the classroom for 14 years. Now I know how to sit in, front, in a room and behave. Right, um, and it took a lot of correction to get it. And I, you know, I want teachers to have to do all of that correction to teach the same kind of etiquette that parents may or may not be demonstrating. I know that feels terrible to teachers who feel like all day they have to go stop looking at your phone, stop looking at your phone. But I, I'm just trying to be honest about what the question is. I don't want to put it on one side or the or the other uh, of that. I, I recognize how hard that is. I mean, I, I'm a college professor, and and it's it's really obvious when the people over there are making their fantasy football and not paying attention to me, and I don't want to say turn off your laptop, um, um, but uh, it, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing. You know, so as a college professor, it's a little easier because I'm allowed to go, what are you doing, F uh, fantasy football over there? I'm allowed to tease them a little more than you can with younger kids. Um, um, so I was just thinking about that too, Jordan. Actually, that would be a great question as far as the bands, uh, whether or not, what, I, I mean, it's a... It's an all-inclusive solution. It's, a, it's an easy solution for us to go, uh, whether, whether it be district-wide or you can't even bring your device to school, so on and so forth. You, have, you must keep them inside the locker or whatever it might be. Is it something that we're, act, we're actually doing harm then in a way instead of being able to model the appropriate times when you actually do pull out your devices and then use them? But then on the other hand too, and I'll, I'll say this, 
I've seen many, many staff meetings where it's a group full of educators. We're, we're teachers and we're, trying to, we're supposed to be modeling behavior and we are the worst models of etiquette, of phone behavior especially. People checking their stuff. How many people in the room? People <laughs> scrolling through things or whatever it might be. And then you're, you see this and you're like, and it's so disheartening, you know, yeah. kind of that. You know, you know what, I, what I would say to that is, um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say anything to the teachers at that behavior. What I would say to the question about the ban. The Carl's ban- in the front and he's <laughs> laughing. <'cause laughs> the, banning, uh, the, the banning of it. I, I do think the ban is, a, is problematic. What I've seen a few, a few schools start to do, which I think is a really good solution, so I'll, I'll say it, is actually uh, articulating a real, really clear um, policy around what happens if your teacher asks you to not use your phone and you don't listen, right? So that then they're basically saying, te- so because they wanted to say, hey, sometimes teachers want you to use your phone in the classroom, and that, that's okay, but by sure. sending home and saying to the kids, hey, here's a clear policy, one strike and we take your device all day, two strikes, you're not ever allowed to bring it, right? I think that's way, way better, because that then is not saying, hey, no, no, you know, that's not the blanket problem, that's actually very clearly saying to everyone, you need to learn how to find the appropriate phone behavior for yeah. the adult in which room you are sitting right now, um, and, and that there will be consequences if you don't. Um, um, my, my, my son's school is doing that right now, and the, the students complain, 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 and I, always, and I hear them at the, my table sometimes going, it's so terrible, they made this strict policy. I'm like, that's always the poli- been the policy. They just wrote it down. You just didn't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, the, the cell phone bans and stuff like, it almost negates the nuance of, like, your question is incredibly complicated. I don't think there are enough words in the world to address the complexities of that question. Um, we could spend years, there are studies, um, I mean, like I said, there aren't enough words in the world to address this, and um, we're not going to answer it right away, and we may never fully answer it because they'll just end up being something they'll just end up being something else that will, will distract us or take our, our attention away. Um, and, and I mean, I always say on the podcast, it's complicated because you know we try to like brush away these things with like self, like, oh, we don't want to have the nuanced discussion, so let's just ban the damn phones, right? And that's in, in, incredibly obtuse, for lack of better words. And it's our job as adults to teach them how to live with the cell phones. Sure it is. Uh, any other questions? Anyone? We have time maybe for... We have one up here at the front. Awesome. Probably have time for one more after this as well. Um, I teach and am the technology integration specialist in a one-to-one district. What's as, your name? Uh, Corey. Hi, Corey. Um, <clears throat> and my school bans phones because you have your iPad. You don't need your phone in class because we want you to be using your tools for class. Um, But what I'm finding, and the same complaint in all the buildings, is kids don't, they don't know how to self-regulate. And so, I mean, I have a two-year-old at home. She also does not know how to self-regulate. And my middle schoolers throw the exact same temper tantrum that my two-year-old does when you make them put the technology away because they're watching YouTube instead of in Google Suite doing their report or, you know, whatever. How do we teach, one, as a parent, I don't know how to teach my daughter self-regulation with that. We put um, timers on her Kindle, but that doesn't teach her to self-regulate. 
the machine shut off? How do we teach middle schoolers how to self-regulate? Because a lot of families use the iPads as babysitters when they're home. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> so, so, let, so, so uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, the way you teach someone to self-regulate is constant, constant, constant reminders. And I think we've gotten in this place where we, we think because they don't self-regulate, we're not teaching them to self-regulate. If you asked my mother, she'd probably go, I'm still trying to teach you how to regulate some things. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I, I think that, 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 that it's this constant reminder with this hope that by the time they're adults, they can self-regulate. Right? Like, it, it's, I mean, some, some, and even a lot of adults can't can, can do it well. So, so our job is to correct and, and, and stop. And yes, there's temper tantrums. I mean, this is something that, this, one of my my pet peeves is the, the temper tantrum screen time connection because my kids have temper tantrums about anything I ask them to stop, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, like if, if they're building with Lego and I say, time to stop and eat dinner, they scream, I just need to do one more brick. This is the, I mean, that, that, it's always, that's, all, that's normal. That's normal child behavior. That's normal lack of self-regulation. And all we can do is constantly remind and stop and force them to stop. There's, there's a big problem if they throw that temper tantrum and then next time you're afraid to put them to put the same boundary in place. You know, the, one of the hardest things about being a parent, uh, uh, at least in my in my experience, is the fact that I say no. My kids have a temper tantrum, and then I have to watch them go through that same frustration tomorrow when I say no again. And I'm not, a, you know, all I want to do is go. I love you so much. Like I'm not. I don't want to cause you pain and frustration tomorrow, but I can because I need to constantly say this is the boundary. I, it sucks now. Hopefully by the the time you're I'm 42 hopefully by the time you're 42 you'll have figured out how to maintain that that boundary I'll be honest and I think all of us can be honest there's places where we still haven't right there's we all binge watch right we all we all binge watch and then wake up in the morning yes. and go why did I why did I need to watch the next episode I could have stopped a half hour earlier and I would have felt better this morning right we have all got go through that sometimes that's reality what we want to make sure is that our kids wake up and have that same regret that we have as adults so that they start to make different decisions. And that is not something that you're going to see results of immediately, but nevertheless, you have to do over and over and over and over again. I was just thinking that it just, it's the process of really, really good teaching, whether it happens at home or it happens at school. It's consistent feedback and then also just being consistent in whatever the yeah. specific things you decide to go ahead and do. So you're doing a great job as far as saying, this is it. There's going to be the reaction by the student, at, depending upon their age of development and personalities and whatever it might be, it's going to be all over the place. Sometimes it will be a tantrum and sometimes it will be like just disappointment or whatever it might be, but that is what it is. And then you can move on and, and be just as long as they feel like, oh, they are consistent and you're not going to be kind of flitter fluttering around. When you talk about a difference reaction, what's important to remember is that, is that the frustration at needing to stop what you're doing is normal. The question is whether you've articulated, whether you know better than to, like, you shouldn't articulate that with a temper tantrum. I always say to my kids when we're like at the airport or someplace or in line and they're, and they, and they, and they're like, this is so boring. I, hate it and I always go I go yeah everyone here is bored and hates it the difference is the adults have learned they're not airport. allowed to say it <laughs> right? that's, that's so true it. but they're not feeling it any less than you they have just learned what's a, an appropriate way to express it and I think that is absolutely that's something to remember the oh, question God. isn't 
are they upset? Of course they're gonna be upset. They were having fun, you stopped it. It's a normal thing to be upset about. This, the problem is if you have a temper tantrum about it, that's a bad way of articulating it. That is not socially acceptable. So we wanna say, I understand you're sad. The better way to handle that is to say, I'm sad about this and then get up and come to the table, right? Which I'm not under any illusion that that's gonna work <laughs> until you've done it for 20 years. There was something that you had said actually on the podcast before too, Jordan, on this specific topic, how maybe our parents, or at least my mom always did this, they told you to do something, right? And then their reasoning behind it was always because I said to do it, right? Because I said so. I've learned that that might not be the best way of approaching (laughs) parenting with my kids, really having a logical reason why you're doing whatever it is. And whether they, they comprehend that at their age of development they may not, but you can say it's time to do X. It's, it's time right. to do moves. In most cases, moves. they won't comprehend it, but that doesn't mean you don't repeat it, right? Absolutely. Because we're trying to create that voice in their heads, that voice in the you know when we all walk down the street, we have a voice of our parents or other or, or our grandparents or whoever our caregivers, our coaches go. You know, we, all, we and it's the equivalent of what would Jesus do? We're like we're like what would that guy on my shoulder do, right? Um, and we need that voice and we need that build that voice for our kids. We need to do it, and that means a That's lot of repeating things and a lot of nagging. I'm like super <laughs> pro nag. Like, like, that's our job as parents. We need a sticker. Nag, pro nagger. Feels terrible to the parents, but it's what it's what it's what creates a conscience. Interesting. I think we have time for one Any more, more questions? question. If anyone has one, Harry. I have, I have one. Oh, <laughs> Mary, great. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Pleasure. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the whole idea of multitasking, because I read things about multitasking is really a myth. I know I can't do it very well, but then they tell you, well, our kids today are wired differently. They can do more of that. What, what, ha- what insights have you come up with on that yeah i mean first uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the research around around multitasking uh, a lot of the research around attention spans a lot of, you know that's, there's a lot of nonsense there um um um, um uh, and by nonsense i just i just mean like it, it's it's built on a sort of faulty foundation and so i you can't trust a, a, a lot of it uh, the question of can we multitask can't we multitask there are certainly tasks that i that you can do multiple at once and there's tasks you can't and i think part of our our, our question as adults as teachers is to te- is to make sure and part of the self-regulation question is making sure young people know how to bring the right kind of attention to the right task right uh, i'm i'm a writer i cannot write a chapter of a book while and while also doing 25 other things. It takes a deep, deep level of focus and concentration, and it takes hours of that to be able to do it. I turn off most of my notifications while, while, while I'm writing. But then there's lots of things like cooking where I can also turn on the TV, and I can also text message, and I can do the multiple things at once. And I think that's true also in our professional lives, too. There's things that we can do multiple things at a time, and there's things we can't. We need to be able to know which kind of attention to bring to each task. And I, and I get really scared so much uh, of we get this rhetoric of, like, there's one right way to focus all the time on every, on every task, right? Like that—that's—that's not—that's not true. I was a—I was a cook for many years, a line cook, and actually, you have to be able to focus on many things at once, and that's a skill I had to learn. I had to be able to have six frying pans frying at one time and know exactly how well done each one was, and 
That was a skill that I learned to do because uh, I, I needed to. And so there are places where we absolutely need to teach our, our, our children to multitask. And then there's places where we have to teach them to give singular, absolute singular focus to what they're doing. And they need to know how to switch from one to the other, when to switch from, uh, and, when, and when to switch from one to another. Closing question. Um, first off, the writing in this book is beautiful. You're, you're, you're a phenomenal writer. As someone who's also trying to write a book, I, I, re I read it also to, like, just, I appreciate the actual style of writing. Um, you go through this, this journey um, in, in the book uh, of history. Um, and, like, the history, first off, human history is super long, citation needed. Um, but... You know, you have this this great these great quotes. I'm, I'm on it, page 209. Hopefully, um, people who pick up his book take a look at this. Um, and and I want to speak to to this as we close. Um, two quotes: Change seems super fast while you're living in it, but in retrospect, it always appears to take hundreds, if not thousands, of years. So this sets up the idea that you know we live in a very small, very incredibly small piece of the time. Of humanity, um, and it's important that we remember that as we're talking about screen time and the ch the pace of technology, and things that are happening in our world. Um, and and the 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 big quote in this whole section is is this: the overly cautious narrative that warns about the pace of progress is nonsense. I'm going to say it again because I think it's a great. It's so hot takey and and just amazing. Um, the overly cautious narrative that warns about the pace of progress is nonsense. And I, I think that a lot of people would react to that if they think about, you know, because we hear this narrative all the time about progress being so fast, about change happening and, you know, keeping up. But people have always been worried about keeping up. Yeah, I, well, for, first let me say, because earlier in this conversation, I was talking about how much I was happy that, uh, that education moves slow, right? So, <laughs> right. So, so I'm, I, there's places where we should absolutely be cautious, uh, cautious about getting too in love with progress that we want to speed up. Um, but uh, the, what I'm getting at in that chapter is not, is not that idea so much as, you know, I was t when I wrote that, I was so tired of the conversation where everyone would go, oh my God, technology is happening so fast. More has happened in the last hundred years than in all of human history combined. And this notion that we're suddenly having some innovation so fast. And I was like, it's just nonsense. It's just absurd, right? Like we're not move, uh, progressing any, where the technology is not progressing any faster than it ever had. You know, just um, uh, uh, it's just that when you look back at it, you forget all the baby steps, right? So, you know, imagine, imagine the move from like, Nothing to the wheel, right? That felt, that felt huge, and there were probably 50 iterations of the wheel at that point, and everyone's like, I came up with the perfect carriage, and everyone's like, wow, last week all we had was a wheel, and now we have a horse-drawn carriage. It's <laughs> happening so fast, and we look back, and we're just like, yeah, whatever, so that, that all happened in 100 years. We can see this now, right? Like, most of us forget about how many iterations there were between the calculator and the pocket calculator, which felt super fast. We think that was a tiny, it was a large step. That was over 10 years, constant changes. Everyone 
touting each change as it was the biggest, the biggest one. Most of the stuff that we have right now that we think are huge innovations will be forgotten in history. A one or two of them will last, right? Maybe the silicon chip will last in the long run. Maybe AI will last. Our smartphones are going to look irrelevant, right? We're going to be like, we're going to yeah. be like, well, you know, we, we feel like every smartphone innovation is a huge thing. Oh my God, they came out with a digital assistant. But when they look back at time, they're going to be like, a digital what? Huh? Huh? Right? Or, or writing. The ancient Mesopotamians were, were probably like, last week we were just scratching on tablets, and now we have letters. Well, how's anyone going to keep up? How can the human brain possibly keep up with this level of, of, of fast change? I mean, again, it's, not, it's always fast. It's always fast because humans are constantly trying to come up with new ways to use tools as quickly as they can. But in the end, we end up with these big markers in time. Most of the 20th century will probably feel like there were three huge innovations a thousand years from now, right? They'll look back and they'll go, oh, they had three things they came up with that helped humanity. We're like, oh my God, there were 400 million things, right? But no, I mean, I think we know, uh, you know, like there's were certain mathematical changes in, in thinking, ways of thinking about math and science that made all of that technology possible. That was the innovation. All the things in between were just ways of using that thinking. Right? Um, most of them will, will forget. And so that was why I wrote that sentence. I was like, I, I just, I needed to get rid of it. I would go to education conferences, I would go to government conferences, I would go to all kinds of conferences, everywhere, and I'd hear the people on the stage going, going, it's go happening, you know, what, there's a whole book about this, about where they draw the curve, and they're, and they're like, well, suddenly our brains can't keep up with the things our brains came up with. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, we came up with computers, we did not invent something that's faster than us. Right? Like, that's not real. That's not real. That's a fantasy we want to have about how brilliant we are. Right? And it's not true. We're not that brilliant. Right? <laughs> Amazing. That's an awesome way to, to end this. So what we're, we're going to do, we're going to, first off, we're going to give a round of applause to Jordan Shapiro for joining us. Thank Thanks. you so much. And I'm new. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the Education Podcast Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Jennifer Gonzalez, Matt Miller, and many more by visiting edupodcastnetwork.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.